Hey, this is Tim McCurdy, and welcome to Vinepair's Cocktail College, a weekly deep dive into classic cocktails that goes beyond the recipe with America's best bartenders. Here's a hypothetical scenario you've probably never considered, listener. The year is 2023, and the now septuagenarian Rupert Holmes is re-recording and updating his classic 70s tune, Escape. Now, obviously, our buddy Rupert found himself on the apps. But what's he putting on his profile? Rather than health foods, is it plant-based meats or avocado toast that he's not into? And rather than champagne, is our man drinking pet nap? One thing's for sure, Rupert is making it abundantly clear that he is absolutely, positively into the Pina Verde, otherwise known as the Grina Colada. We're joined today by the inventor of that modern-day classic, Eric Castro, a longtime industry pro, host of the Bartender at Large podcast, and proprietor of Raised by Wolves. You may remember Eric's star turn on our Margarita episode, but today he casts light on how this seemingly simple four-ingredient and four-years-in-the-making cocktail came to be. Beyond the ins and outs of the Pina Verde, we take a brief detour down to Universal Studios and say hi to some Carthusian monks. The year is 2023, listener, and one thing remains as true now as it ever was. Ain't no harm in getting caught in the rain, especially if you're tuning into an episode of the Cocktail College Podcast. On a day that some people are calling to be a national holiday, the day after the Super Bowl, this podcast doesn't stop. Cocktail College flies on. Unlike the Eagles. Sorry, guys. Um, <laughs> Too soon, bro. Too soon. <laughs> that right there. That, that, that jovial voice you can hear is returning guest, Eric Castro. Eric, welcome, man. Thanks for joining me. Thanks for having me back, my friend. Thanks for having me back. Especially, I'm glad to be doing this like in person, not over Zoom. It's, yep. it's nice to be sitting here in your studio. Yep. So I appreciate the invite. It's a rare treat when we get you over here on the East Coast and, uh, you know, couldn't miss an opportunity, a visit from yourself for us to not not have you here in the studio. You did invite me here last Friday. I was supposed to be here last Friday for everybody to listen to this. <laughs> However, I had a very big Thursday. <laughs> and I would like to tell you uh, in person, thank you for being so accommodating to my... um. I was ruthlessly overserved. <laughs> Those New I would York like bartenders. to say against my will. However, <laughs> I, was, I was a very... um. I was very compliant yeah. in it all. So I do appreciate you you pushing things back a couple of days for me. I appreciate it. You say the date and we'll be here. And, you know, one of the best things about having you back on as well, we covered the margarita with you last time. It's a wonderful episode. Yeah. It's, you know, it's a banger, that one. But today we get to talk about one of your own creations. Yeah, we're going to be talking about the Pina Verde, which is a cocktail I feel very near and dear to my heart, obviously. It's one of... If we're being honest, it's it's maybe my cocktail that I'm most proud of for creating. Yeah. Mostly due to its simplicity. It's only four ingredients. Mm-hmm. And I feel like it's it's easy to come up with a cocktail that's good. Not great, but it's easy to come up with a cocktail that's good when there's, you know, eight things, six things, ten things in a glass. But it's really difficult practicing economy in a cocktail it is very, very difficult. And honestly, I don't even think I have another cocktail in my in my canon that I've created that does so much with so little. That's mm-hmm. why I'm so proud of that cocktail. 
Would you say that this is maybe the drink that most gets associated with yourself by by other people in the industry or maybe some others? Where, where does I this would one definitely, rank? I would say that's that this might be the one. This might be the one mm-hmm. because the Kentucky Buck is another cocktail I came up with that that kind of took on a life of its own. Mm-hmm. Though to be fair, that cocktail maybe had like a five year, four year head start. So that cocktail has been on menus all over the place, you know, like it's even been on the menu, like chain restaurants, which, yeah. which I find fascinating. Wow. But this is the one that was, I feel the, the culmination of so many different factors in my life that it was just like, I mean, it, it's four ingredients. Like I've actually had people text me. Are we allowed to swear here? Yes. I've had people encouraged. text me when they first had me like, fuck you. <laughs> <laughs> this is horse shit. I should have invented this. I should have come up with this drink. This drink in another in another universe in the multiverse. Mm-hmm. This is my drink, not yours. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, whoa, calm down, calm down. <laughs> They're like, They're like, it's four ingredients. This makes no sense. How is this drink so good with only four ingredients? Mm-hmm. And none of them are house made. They're just like, you know, you could buy them off the supermarket Standard shelf. Things. Did Robert Simonson include this in his modern classic cocktail book recently? I don't know. I think so. I'm I almost think, positive. It was. Yeah, did. yeah, yeah. If yeah. he didn't, yeah, he should have. <laughs> no, I'm almost positive he but, did. I'm almost positive he did. And the reason I mention that is because, you know, like when we do have returning guests such as yourself and they're speaking about a drink they've created, mm-hmm. generally speaking, they're, you know, whether officially anointed or otherwise, they're modern classics, mm-hmm. right? And he sets out a pretty compelling theory for what makes a drink a, yeah. a modern classic. And one of the, the criteria he says is that, like, they need to be made with simple ingredients and ingredients that everyone has access to. They need to be replicable. Exactly. But also, I'll even add one more thing. They need to have a a wiggle room on the build. You need to be able to fuck them up and have it still taste good. Right. Yeah. Yeah, good point. Like a Paloma is a good example. A margarita is a good example. You can mess it up. You can make your margarita with with bottled sour mix, and it's still a margarita. Yeah. still tastes good. Yeah. You could do a splash of OJ. You could flow... Grand Gala, Grand Marnier, Grand anything on top, and it'll still taste good. So, well, obviously, it's going to taste good, right? You could Cadillac it. You could add a splash of Sprite, probably, and nobody would even notice, right? It'd still be really good. Exactly. So, you need that wiggle room on the build because you can't go and train everybody. You know, you could have a margarita made with lemon juice instead of lime, and it's still delicious. Exactly. You need that that wiggle room on the build. What's that? What's that other one? That, again, it's another modern one. It's, it's, it's bourbon, and it's a uh, honey... The, the gold rush. The gold rush. Yeah. There's another drink. You can fuck around with the, you the, can the, mess the ratios with that. on that, but it just You can mess bangs. up the garnish. You could not garnish it at yeah. all. You can there there's so many different areas you can go to go into and it's always good. So it's mm-hmm. basically it's never gonna get sent back. Mm-hmm. But there's a lot of drinks out there where if you mess up one thing, it's unpalatable. Mm-hmm. You know, so in order for I feel like for a drink to make that leap, it has to be able to be you have to be able to mess it up and have it still be delicious. And I think another one as well is like, yeah, it doesn't have some kind of weird proprietary Mm-mm. component that requires a lot of prep. I mean, that just means, yeah, it's hard It's hard to replicate. Mm-hmm. Right? For instance, one of our top selling cocktails at Raised by Wolves is a drink I came up with years ago, and I'm very proud of it. It's a, it's I, it's a drink also I'm, be- I'm very proud of because it does a lot. It incorporates a lot of modern culinary techniques. While still being very simple, it's called the Island Old Fashioned, but I know it'll never be a modern classic, and I'm okay with that because yeah. it's it's a you know sous vide Irish whiskey that's mm-hmm. you know a fat wash. 
And I, I don't expect go, anyone to make that at home or, or other bars. You can't just call it. Yeah. Unless the only way it could ever make that leap is if Jameson put out like coconut right. Irish whiskey. That mm-hmm. was good, mm-hmm. right? That was good enough to, to drink in a, in a stirred cocktail. So, you know, and I'm fine with that because when we opened Raised by Wolves, the idea was my business partner told me, he's like, Eric, I want these drinks to be drinks that nobody can make at home. I want which them to I be see, all proprietary. Get, yeah. The, well, five years ago, that, that was a yeah. very novel concept. We've kind of yeah. moved away from that since, but he want that was the idea. It was like, I want it to be like, if you want this drink, you have to come here. Mm-hmm. And I think that's fun. I think that's, a, that was an interesting challenge. And I think another, when I was thinking about this drink before, you know, before today, prepping for the episode, I think something that's very notable about it and fits into this conversation is this is a riff on a pina colada. For Completely. Those who, who, yeah. who, for those who aren't right familiar with it. But so what's successful about this is it's a completely different drink. Comple- so, tastes nothing like a pina yeah. colada, so which is it, the coolest yeah. thing about the drink. Exactly. And, and, and it builds on that. So that's another thing that I think helps spread a reputation, right? It's like, oh, have you ever had Eric Castro's Pina Verde? No, what is it? It's a pina colada with green chartreuse, essentially, right? Yeah, more or less. Well, the way the drink started out, if we're going to get into the history of it, is very interesting. I I came up with a drink. This is one of those drinks, like some drinks came together really quickly for me. You know, some drinks uh, take a bit of time. This is one of these cocktails that took a long time. I think this drink maybe evolved over the course of about a year or two. Oh, really? Maybe even longer. Wow. Might even be longer. The earliest version of this drink, I think I was making in 2009 which maybe four years before it was ever on the menu, three years, four years before it was ever on the menu. That's crazy. I started to float green chartreuse over pina coladas. Okay. I just liked it. And I, I mean, honestly, it was, I was probably doing like, a, you know, three-eighths of an ounce, you know, maybe half of an ounce just floating on top because I thought it worked really well. And I liked the, um, I liked the, the way the botanicals and the chartreuse played with the, with the coconut particularly. And it worked really well, and it was just a thing I just kind of did, but never really put too much thought into. Mm-hmm. And then when I started working for Beef Eater Gin, even about 2010, I worked for them for about two years, I started to make the drink with gin instead and still float the chartreuse on top. And it was just something that I, again, it just was doing. And mind you, this might have been a year later or something. And then as time went by, I would make it for people and everyone. And, you know, when I'd make it for someone at the bar, they always liked it. Like, oh, it's really cool, coconut and chartreuse. And I actually took a step back and I got into the mindset like, wait, if what I like about this drink so much is the chartreuse and the coconut, you know, with, with the pineapple and the lime, like, why don't I just get rid of everything and just, or get rid of the spirit altogether and just replace it with, with the chartreuse with, you know, which is a liqueur that's at 55% ABV. Yeah. So you can get away with it. And I'm sure maybe I think part of the inspiration for this drink was if, if I want to, you know, give a, a tip of the hat to, Marco Dionysus, who invented the chartreuse swizzle, his cocktail is an, another one that just does away with the spirit altogether. It replaces it with the liqueur. Mm-hmm. And that's when I was like, you know what? Yeah, that drink already shows that chartreuse can stand on its own. I'm just going to get rid of the gin and get rid of the rum and get rid of everything. Just let it stand. And that's when the drink came alive. That's when I was like, wow. That's when people were, were asking, like, what was in that? What's the recipe? I'm going to write that down. And then we used to call it back then, we used to call it the Greenia Colada because it just seemed like a kind of funny, funny uh, play on words. And then as time went by, if I'm remembering correctly, it was on the menu. We were doing it on special menus for, for polite provisions when we first opened. We used to do a tiki night there. 
uh, Tuesdays. I think it was like the second Tuesday of the month, and it was just a big thing. There, there weren't, there wasn't like a tiki bar in San Diego yet that was using you know fresh ingredients and stuff. So we were doing that, and it was just a thing. People were coming out for it, and it was selling really well each time. And then when I came out here to New York and opened Boilermaker, it was on the mm. opening menu. Nice. And that's when the drink took off because in San Diego it was more of a one-off. It would be on the menu now and then, and the uh, folks who would come in would remember, be like, hey, can I get that drink that I ordered for tiki night a couple weeks ago? But here it was just on the menu. And that's when it took off. Like, I remember, I knew I had something special with that drink when people were stopping me on the street and asking me about it. Like, I remember being, I was walking through the East Village and I bumped into Jeff Bell <laughs> from, from PDT. Mm-hmm. And he's just like, hey, Castro, what's up, bro? What's up? And I'm like, hey, Jeff, man, what's going on? What's going on? We just had a little quick chat on the street. He's like, hey, man, I was at Boilermaker the other night. Hey, that chartreuse and coconut drink? Man. You That's got something wild. there, man. That cocktail's off the hook. That's wild. And I was like, thanks, man. Thanks, man. I appreciate it. Didn't think, again, didn't think too much about it. And then I'd see someone else like a few days later, someone would shoot me a text like, hey, man, I was a Boilermaker. I had that cocktail. You know, I think it was John Darragon, you know, also shot me a text like, oh, man, that drink's great, dude. You have something, the, that, that drink's <laughs> something right there. And it's just kind of the drink took on a life of its own. Now, here we are years later. And I, last I saw, it was like on the menu at Universal Studios in Orlando. No way. Someone sent me a photo. It's on a menu there. <laughs> I mean, props to whoever they're bought. Yeah, right. Is, yeah, <laughs> someone found it and I'm okay with that. I was like, hey, man, I mean, you guys want to, you know, throw me season pass or no. something. I'll go, <laughs> I'm not going to say no. But, you know, uh, uh, I'm just very flattered by it because, again, it's like I, I feel like there's something about the drink. People are familiar with the combination. Here, I'm going to rewind a bit. I feel like sometimes in order for somebody to try a new drink, they need to be able to at least relate to a, like some of the flavor combinations on there. Yeah. Even if they don't know all the ingredients, that if they can put a, a few together, that's enough for them. Mm-hmm. You know, so, you know, obviously it's like bourbon, lemon, honey, like we mentioned, gold rush. That's super easy. Yeah. Right. Someone wraps their head around that. Oh, cool. I get it. But if someone sees something, even if it's more of like. You know, a Mai Tai that, you know, a properly made, you know, 1944 Mai Tai, they might not wrap their heads around, but they're like, ooh, lime and almonds, rum. I get it. I know this stuff. I can wrap my head around it. Yeah. So th- that's kind of the hurdle they need to overcome before they order it for the first time. With this drink, the public at large, you know, the, the, the mind share of the American drinkers have no idea what green chartreuse is, right? But they know that the combination of lime, pineapple, and coconut is delicious. Yeah. So... There's they're they're not taking a big leap of faith, you know. They might because the way we noticed with that drink, the way it, when it starts to get ordered a lot, you know, this was even when Boilermaker opened. I think it was like 20, 2014. A lot of people didn't quite didn't know what Chartreuse was, but it was a top seller there. But they would see it go out, and they'd say, "What is that?" Yeah, and like oh, it's a cocktail called the Pina Verde. It's like a herbal riff on the Pina Colada. They're like I'll take one. You don't need to explain what green Chartreuse is. They don't need to take this this big leap of faith. They don't need to be schooled on the the, the botanicals and the process and the Carthusian monks. They're like, oh, a riff on a pina colada. So it's, you know, lime, pineapple, coconut. Yeah, I'll take one. <laughs> they don't need to. So yeah. that's that makes it so much easier for a bartender. And, and I guess this relates back to Robert Simonson's book, whereas in order for something to become a modern classic, it needs to be, it needs an elevator pitch. Yes. People need to be able to wrap their heads around it and how it's going to taste Within a few seconds, like, you know, the, the, the Paloma was having a moment a few years back and it's like, oh, grapefruit tequila. Yeah, I'll take it. Phenomenal. There's nothing there's nothing that that for them that's too difficult to wrap their head around. But yeah. if you were trying to explain like, oh, it's, you know, 
sake and um, alpine liqueur and this like blueberry amaro, they, it might not be as as easy for them to, it's to grasp hard, it's how it's going to taste. Sell. Yeah, and you mentioned another thing there as well. When a drink looks great. And that goes out in the bar. That's another thing that helps spread the popularity, That's right? That's the thing. It goes out and it looks creamy. It looks like a milkshake almost. Yeah. You know, there's no dairy in it, but it's like, it just looks creamy enough. And, you know, um, the presentation looks really great. It just looks appetizing, especially on a hot day. And people are like, what is that? I want one. Yeah, I remember. No reference. I remember. And also, I remember, uh, I, I would say, I, I knew that drink was really starting to take off when I started to have people send me pictures of it from around the world. And that's when, you know, it was on the menu. And even honestly, I, I knew I kind of had something and people were impressed with it. And it was on the more, uh, menu at Boilermaker. But again, when you're in it, I don't know how much of it is actually what I'm seeing and how much of it is just what people are telling me. So it took a while. I would say it was like a year or two as the drink was doing this a slow build when it just kind of started popping up in different places. And that's when I was like, okay, cool. Mm-hmm. I have something here. And I do know also, you know, God bless them. I know the team at Green Shore Truce was making it at events. Because they wanted to show people like, hey, look, this drink, you can you can use an ounce and a half of it. You don't need to just do like a, a bar spoon <laughs> I mean, or they a half were, of nuts. That's just yeah, smart dude, business. It's so, they must have loved it. They yeah, must, so they're cranking out. And also, again, like you can do it in an event. You can do it in another city. And you don't need to source any special ingredients. It's just, it's stuff that, like I said, you can buy at a grocery store. Mm-hmm. So the drink took on a life of its own. That's, I would say probably around 2015, 2016 is when I started to get people sending me texts and photos of like, oh, hey, I'm in Melbourne. I still, the, the peanut berries on the menu here. Oh, cool. Or, hey, I'm in Shanghai. I'm in Singapore. I'm in, you know, Buenos Aires. And it's just like people are having this cocktail all over the world. And again, I think it's that thing. No matter where you're at, you can get these ingredients. Yes. Because there's some cocktails I've come up with in the past and other people have come up with where, you know, someone like, oh, that, that liqueur is not available here. Yeah. I, I, can't, I can't get my hands on that here. You know, a blueberry Amaro isn't available here. So... But with the, again, with green chartreuse, as long as green chartreuse is there in this country, then all the other ingredients are already going to be there. So, Well, speaking of which, I mean, timely here, because did I not read somewhere oh where they're, God. are they, are they... People are blaming me. I've had people blame me for that. That they're cutting production? Yeah. Because they well, want Well, it's not it. that they're cutting production. No. They're just not amping it up. They're not going to increase it because yeah. they want to also focus on what their actual day job, like, yeah. or what they're devoted to, which is being... Cartusian monks. So for all of you out there who, who <laughs> yeah. aren't savvy on the production uh, levels in regards to green chartreuse is that chartreuse is made, is a monastic liqueur that's that's made by monks, actual religious monks in France. And every year for the last maybe about 12, 13 years, they've been r- ramping up production each year because as bartenders are using more and more of it, <laughs> I remember we used to be able to get Chartreuse, when I was running Rick House, it was about $24 a bottle wholesale for $750, which is, which Not is anymore, very, right? no, now I think it's like $58 yeah. wholesale because what they slowly started to do is like, well, we're just going to start increasing the cost of it to slow things down, but that doesn't help. <laughs> it's not helping. People, People just, are, just up the price of the yeah, drinks. They just up the price of the drinks, especially like, I mean, I know places that are just like, oh, we sold the, we bumped the Pina Verde up to tw- like uh, to 22 bucks and it still sells and people don't care. <laughs> And I'm like, okay, so, you know, here's the thing. A last word only uses like three quarter rounds generally, you know, yeah. uh, uh, a bijou or anything uses like maybe a half ounce, depending. A lot of these cocktails only use like a half ounce yeah. of green chartreuse. But then you have drinks like the Pina Verde, it's like <laughs> ounce and a half. So, like, well, you could make three of those for, for you know, one Pina Verde. So people, honestly, I think 
don't care what it costs to a certain extent. Mm-hmm. If they want that drink, they might not pay that if it's their first one, but if they, they know it, they'll pay it. So now it brings us to where we are, uh, you know, in today's um, reality. And that's that the Carthusia monks are like, we're not going to ramp up production. We're going to keep making we're what we're making. <laughs> we're capping it. And all you out there have to deal with it. I like to think you're on their radar down there, the monks. I like to think they're thinking of you and they're like, yeah. oh my God, that guy Castro came yeah. up with that. Drink. Thank God they have a vow of silence. Otherwise, <laughs> they'd probably be like, fuck that guy. You know, I don't know. Do, do I want to say that there was a story that came out in the pandemic. It might have been in the New York Times. It was a profile on them. Mm-hmm. And it was talking about how the rest of the world was entering into like shutdown mode and solitude for the first time. And it's like, these guys are also like, this is our time. We've been practicing this for a long time. I, I hope know. that doesn't come across as insincere because no, it's, no. it's really not. But you know what I mean? Yeah. I remember reading that article and just being like, oh my God. Yeah. Like this is, this is our time. <laughs> you know, I mean, I get it. I get it, especially because. During the pandemic, so many people started to create, I guess, up their game at home for yep. cocktails. So they yep. were creating better cocktails and more intricate cocktails at home that they might have not ever made a drink on that level before. And so, of course, they started you know, beefing up their home bars. They couldn't go to their favorite bar. They couldn't get these cocktails. So they started making them at home. And I think as they started making them at home, I think that might be another driver for for the sales of Green Chartreuse. Yeah, for sure. I bet. I bet. You know? And and yeah, people becoming more versed in just like cocktails and stuff. But yeah, for sure. So many people picked up that hobby, Mm -hmm. right, during the pandemic. You mentioned, by the way, that like this being in the uh, Universal Studios I, I, I shudder to think what those guys are charging for I this know, drink as well. I know. From what I understand, it's like, from what I understand, there's, it was a smaller serving. Okay. So that's the other way you can do it, I yeah. guess. Right. I want to say those guys, maybe a different theme park, mm-hmm. but don't they also have the, is it the Angostura Colada? Is that, an, I don't you know, know, Sunken Harbor Club? Yeah. I want to say that's an old Sinjin Frizzle drink. They definitely got picked up at a... A park. I might be wrong. I might be making all of this. For rock. some reason, I feel like the Angle Colada was from Drink uh, in Brooklyn. Yeah, yeah, maybe. So maybe it's not his. They definitely have it or on Dram, the menu from Dram. Okay, I think it was a drink at Dram. I think, they but have I might it. not be remembering correctly. Yeah, God, that bar knows? was great. By the way, I, I really want to give a shout out to Dram in Brooklyn. Mm-hmm. I know it's been shut down for years now, but that bar was incredible. So many great bartenders came out of that place. Yeah, yeah, incredible cocktails. And they. In a lot of ways, I feel like that bar, if we're going to take a trip down memory lane, talking about $24, $24 bottles of green chartreuse. <laughs> I do remember that bar I felt like was very, it was novel at the time for what I feel is normal today. Mm-hmm. It's just like being able to go to a bar with a group of friends, have your drinks. It wasn't a speakeasy. There's no dress code. You kind of just went in there and just popped in and had a drink, a couple drinks. If you wanted to have a beer, you could have a beer or you could have an exquisite cocktail. And it was just a very casual environment with like cool music playing and had some incredible bartenders there. And it was very, I feel like for the time it was, I almost feel like it was ahead of its time. Yeah. Because now what they're doing is, is pretty standard. Yeah. Yeah. I would yeah, even say sure. it might even be the norm in a lot of ways. Yeah, definitely. And, and yeah, apologies if, if I misattributed that drink to mm. someone or whatever. I just know I came across it. It might on, be though. I, I I'm came not across saying, it. On, yeah. Either way. I I'm not a hundred percent on it. Club, but Whatever these the guys at Universal Studios they like riffs on pina coladas yeah <laughs> like apparently you know they're probably putting it on there for the same reason yeah because like we could put this on the menu we don't have to explain it to people yep you know especially to tourists they're like oh 
So it's a pina colada. Yeah, so yeah. it's wet lime, coconut, pineapple. It's delicious. Yeah. What's this? And you're like, oh, it's a French liqueur. Oh, that's fancy. I'll yeah. take one. You know, so it doesn't matter where they're from. It just seems like something that they could that they could throw it's back. Easier, but a big fan down there. Um, I even had friends tell me like, "Oh man, I hate you." And I'm like, "What?" Like my mom, she doesn't even drink cocktails, and her favorite drink is the Pina Verde. <laughs> <laughs> she comes That's to my wild. bar, and all she wants is that drink. She doesn't even want to try any of my cocktails. And I'm like, mm. "That's wild." I'm like, "What can I say? Your mom has great taste." <laughs> <laughs> Why, why, for those listening who maybe don't work in the industry, but again, maybe they picked up this this hobby during the pandemic, right? Why is green chartreuse so beloved by the industry, do you think? Or both chartreuse, but green. In a lot you know, of like- ways, it was a very insidery type of thing. It was like a... I don't want to say it, was a, it wasn't a bartender's handshake in the way that, you know, a shot of Fernet Branca was you know, years ago or still is actually. But basically if you went to a bar and they had green chartreuse on the back bar, you already knew it was a good spot. Yeah. Calling card kind it of thing. It was a calling card. Yeah. It's basically a way to let people know that, Hey, look, we know what we're doing here. Yeah. Because there was no reason any other bar would carry it except for maybe a couple of dive bars in the Bay area, you know, who were like, they were just, you know, blowing through cases of it just as a <laughs> shot. But uh, that was more of, I guess of a, of a, of a unique situation. Generally though, if you went to a new city and you didn't know what kind of place you were in and those ball of green chartreuse, you're like, okay. Yeah. You might even have a start the conversation with me. Hey, so what are you making with that green chartreuse? And that was a, a way to feel out whether you could order What's a proper cocktail. There, yeah. yeah. So it became a thing where it was just like, it was a way of knowing that, that you were in a place capable of making, you know, yeah. I guess a more classic cocktail. I think it has some of those other ingredients as well that you, you mentioned when you talk about like Fernet or whatnot, like, it's insidery. Mm-hmm. Has a challenging flavor profile. Yeah, if you're drinking it on its own, and I feel like when you're, you know, when you're in, in you're an insider. Mm-hmm. Like, yeah, we like drinking this. Like, no one, I don't know anyone who liked their first shot of Fernet. I know I certainly didn't. No, I didn't either. <laughs> I, I had to get into it the Argentine way by drinking it with Coca Cola for the, for the longest period, and even then, I wasn't really into it. So, yeah, I think it's that. That's another thing, and then maybe the last thing for that too is like cool backstory. People like backstories, right? Yeah, they do like Some a, mystery to it. You know, especially when, when you get into the lore of chartreuse, it's very fascinating. It, it makes it sound that much cooler. Like the idea of only two people in the world know the recipe, you know, according to legend. So it's like these two aren't allowed to travel. Mm-hmm. They can't be on the same airplane. They can't be on the same <laughs> in the same car because if, God forbid, something were to happen to one of them, then the recipe would be lost forever. So there's this story that, you know— Half of it's made by some of the monks and half's made by the other monks. And then the the final blend is, is you know, blended together. So it's like no one knows the entire recipe. There's all these really fascinating stories, and I'm sure some of them are apocryphal. But it doesn't mean that they're not potent yeah. in, in their storytelling as well. Because I feel like in the modern era, as more and more things become homogenized, everything from language to food to just, you know— to fashion, everything's becoming more and more homogenized and the world's getting smaller and things are starting to feel more off the shelf. There's something very reassuring about knowing that green chartreuse is just made in a monastery by a bunch of monks who've taken a vow of silence. It's, it's fascinating to just be able to, 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 to take an ingredient like that that's been made for, for generations and generations and generations mm-hmm. and incorporate into cocktails. Yeah. In a modern cocktail. 
Yeah, modern cocktail as well. And it probably does benefit from the fact that it's in some classics as well, right? Yeah. So they get rediscovered. Called for by name in classics. Yeah, exactly. It doesn't say like, you know, um, like herbal liqueur. It doesn't say, you know, herbaceous. It yeah. says, it flat out says green chartreuse. Green, yeah. Yeah. There Which is isn't always one, the yeah. case with a lot of these old ingredients. You know, sometimes it'll just say curacao or it'll say uh, French vermouth. Right. This is called for specifically by name, which mm-hmm. is which adds that much more credibility to it. Yeah. Yeah. Establishes it as, as that kind of brand. It, no, I, I think it is fascinating, though, as well. Like other spirits or other ingredients are beloved, but you don't see, hear of people like having the vintage collection. Like imagine um, pouring ribbons. I mean, the, yeah. the collection that they used to have there. Right. And people would go there for that. Yeah. It's, yeah. You're right. Or I mean, even I know people who have green chartreuse tattoos. Yeah. Or just, you know, the chartreuse <laughs> tattoos. Or, you know, people who also, like we mentioned earlier, Fernet Bronca is another one of those that's very similar. People have a Fernet Bronca tattoo, but people don't have no. tattoos for other Amaro like, or other or liqueurs. Campari, really. Yeah, right? yeah. No, like, it's, not the, it's not. not the same because mm. I feel like that's not. It's not insular enough. Mm-hmm. Those products are a little too ubiquitous. The other one's Underberg. We just ran a great story here on Vimeo Underberg's about great. Underberg, yeah. And people, I don't know, people Underberg tattoos. Mm-hmm. I've seen a couple now on Instagram. I'm like, wow, that's wild. It's very weird to me. I think it's very strange. And I don't even know if I should be talking about this. But Underberg isn't classified as a, as a alcohol, I believe. It's not. You're so right. theoretically, there's no age limit on that. Anyone could go and buy it. You can sell it in any store. Yeah. Food store. Which is very strange. It's Thank weird, God it tastes, people- <laughs> it tastes the way it does. Otherwise, we'd have this like epidemic of like teenagers on TikTok. Exactly. Know, yeah, yeah. People drinking that. But um, no, I'm glad we got to do this, this little deep dive here on Green Chartreuse because we've covered it obviously in other drinks before. But I figured it being like the hero ingredient of this of this cocktail... I thought we could maybe pick it up, pull it that yeah, thread and it, explore that a little bit more. Yeah, I'm, I sure. am. Thank you. Thanks for having me on to talk about it. It's just, again, it's again, it's one of those drinks where it's like on the menu at Universal Studios. It's on the menu at like, you know, in Vegas and some of the hotel bars. Mm-hmm. It's just, it's, it's one of those drinks that's kind of taken off, not kind of taken, it's, it's taken on a life of its own. And I feel like of, of all the drinks I've come up with, that's the one I think is like most likely people will be drinking mm-hmm. it long after I'm dead. And so for those who haven't tried this drink, Profile-wise, texture-wise, what, what what's the perfectly executed version of this drink like? Can you describe that for us? Creamy, tropical, and herbaceous. Mm-hmm. It's very much, it almost reminds me of like a coconut curry in a lot of ways. Okay. Where it's just a okay. lot of botanicals, a lot of herbs, like very green, you know, but with the with the acid from the lime juice and then the the brightness you get from from the pineapple. And it's just the, the drink is one of those drinks that that when I when I finished it, I was like, this drink is just like this is it. I don't need to I don't yeah. need to tweak it. I don't need to riff it. I don't need to do anything else. It's just a drink that just like stands on its own. Mm-hmm. And like you said before as well, some margin for error. It's There's not a lot one of margin. Yeah, yeah, a lot yeah. of room for error. Like I mean I man, by that I mean it's not like you know you can totally mess it up, but it's like if you have your house you know, your house made um, coconut cream, you know, if you're using dull pineapple out of a can, it works just as good. Um, you know, you could probably do lemon instead of lime and it'd just be, it would still taste great. Like there's so much room for error. I mean, I guarantee you, maybe I'm guessing at Universal Studios, they probably don't make it to my spec, but no. I bet you it doesn't get sent back. And I bet right? you they order another one. Yeah. Because sometimes it's like those flavors, when they work, they just work. Mm-hmm. So... 
there, there's very there, there's something to say for for some of those drinks where it's like that's why I feel like certain cocktails never really broke out of the mold out of the the realm of cocktail nerds. You know, I would even say like a last word. Yeah, is a cocktail. It's like if you're a cocktail nerd, you're in a cocktail bar. It's delicious. If you're at a place where they're like, I don't want someone. If you mess up a last word, if you put in a little too much maraschino, yeah, just even just that a little, uh, not quite enough or too much maraschino or not enough lime, that drink is unpalatable. I don't want to see whoever's working behind the bar, mm-hmm. and this no offense to whoever that may mm-hmm. be, hypothetically. If I ask them for that drink and they pull out their phone to look up what's in that drink, yeah, I'm like, no. you know what, have me a beer. No. You know, unless, yeah, and then it, I mean, I don't even want to see you free pour that unless you're Marie Stenson. You know what I mean? Because it's again, some of those those ingredients, some of them are bullies, and it's like if you mess up one ingredient, yeah, exactly, it's a drink's unpalatable. But again, it's like you know, like pina colada, Paloma, yeah, some of these cocktails, you know, Tom Collins, yeah, you overpour, underpour something, it's gonna be fine. It's fine. Yeah. It, it might, it, it'll pop just as good. So. <laughs> Because, uh, you know, basically the sour, some of these sour, even 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 some that are like Manhattan, martini, some of these drinks, I just feel like the room for air on them. Yeah. You know, some people don't even put vermouth at all in a, in a martini. They, you know, wave the bottle around <laughs> and it still tastes delicious. It does, man. You know, I'm not going to lie. Yeah. <laughs> no, the, you know, there's a they, you might have a bar selling, you know, hundreds every week and they've never put they've never owned a bottle of orange bitters right. yeah, and the yeah, drink yeah, still yeah. works. Yeah. So there's that. 100%. There's that wiggle room. And what about those other ingredients, though? So tell us about your, your opinion when it or, or your thinking here. What do you do with, uh, let's go with pineapple juice next. Are you using fresh? Are you using dough? Are you bringing those? Are you maybe doing we, a we mix We do of two? mix them together. Yeah. Uh, this is something a lot of bars do, a lot of cocktail bars do. We, we yeah. do a blend of um, dough with fresh pineapple. And what's the thinking there? It's just for a little more, cons- for, for more consistency. Yeah. It's something that a lot of, a lot of bars do. Uh, and there's something about that. It, it's just about having a little more consistency and control. Cause I do remember when we were making the drink originally, it was just pure, pure, pure fresh. And then sometimes it was just, it, the, sometimes it's really sweet. Sometimes it's not sweet. Sometimes yeah. it would just, it would kind yeah. of stray all over, all over. So we kind of started to do a blend of the two of them mm-hmm. for a little more consistency. And it felt like that you still get the brightness, but a little more um, control over who's over the final product. Mm-hmm. And then the coconut component as well. Is right, that something do you're Coco doing? Lopez. Just Coco Lopez. Just Coco Lopez. That's cool. great. You know what I mean? It's like, I don't think the recipe's changed in the last 50 years. Doesn't need to. It doesn't have a lot of recipe. <laughs> it doesn't have a lot of ingredients in it anyway. <laughs> and I just, I love, I love the way Coco Lopez, it's like, I've made it myself from scratch before, but there's something just about, about the way they make it that, that just, it, I've offered you know, my services to be the Coco Lopez brand ambassador <laughs> because I love the stuff that much. You know, it's just so versatile. But again, it's like I've had places also make make it from scratch and it, it it's beautiful. It works. It works just as well, if not better. Yeah. Because I remember when Sammy Ross put it on the menu of some some products he was doing in Vegas and they had their house made coconut cream and it was absolutely lovely. Absolutely lovely. I know um, some folks do also do that kind of splitting between different products as well because they maybe worry that it's, it's a little bit sweet for their palate mm-hmm. or whatnot, but I'm good to... And, and again, speaks to our original conversation yeah. here. If you're just using Coco Lopez, it's one less thing to worry about when you're thinking about, yeah, mm-hmm. can I make this drink? Because I know there are a lot of folks out there who use this uh, uh, coconut milk paired with condensed, um, condensed milk. Mm-hmm you know, in varying ratios and it works really well. It's a really great, you know, uh, coconut cream. The only thing you have to worry about is now you're introducing dairy. 
Got it. So there are some people out there that, you know, have allergies or intolerances. So that, that's another thing. Mm-hmm. However, I do know that there is, uh, you know, making it yourself, is, there's plenty, plenty of delicious options out there. Then we do fresh lime. That's pretty, you know, self-explanatory. Yeah. What are, uh, what are lime prices like these days? I know they go up and down. I hear, I hear they're pretty crazy. Yeah, it seems yeah. like they're all over the place. They're, they're all, all over the place, <laughs> it seems like. But for the most part, you know, as long as you're using, you know, just your standard, like, you know, Persian limes that you buy at the grocery store, you should be in good shape. And then the chartreuse, I mean, what else can you put in there? This really isn't, there really isn't a substitute for chartreuse. No. Though I, there is an incentive now for someone to come in and try to, and, you know, to, to put on another version or some type of competitor. Yeah. I think it's a great call. Yeah. But we'll, we'll see, you know, that's, it's hard to, but here's the thing is somebody put out a competitive product that was good. The monks would probably just up, up oh. production. <laughs> you know, it's a good point. Up production, drop the price. And we know then, we know yeah. they're business savvy because yeah. you know they just keep putting the price. They obviously up and know what they're doing. They know what they're doing. Yeah, for sure. And people have probably tried, but mm-hmm. there we go. There we go. What about now? Can you talk us through the the, the build of this drink and the and this the actual spec of it and and talk yeah. us through as if you were making it at a bar? Yeah, so I would do. You know, we do. Um, there's a there's a couple ways of doing this based off of of how you, you know, what what you have at hand. But we generally at, at the bars we do you know half ounce lime, um, ounce and a half pineapple, three quarter ounce coconut cream, and then an ounce and a half of green chartreuse. Then what we generally do. I mean, if you have a Hamilton Beach blender, which is what, you know, all the, all the tiki bars do. And honestly, I think all bars should have them anyway. Because if you're making any drink that has any, any fat in it, it's just better. It just, they just come out better. And all, all those tiki guys figured it out years ago. That's why you go to a tiki bar. You go to Tiki Tea in L.A. or something. And the bartender is like, there's guys back there who are like, you know, 50, 60 years old, 65, making drinks. It's like, because it's easier on your elbows. You just build in the tin of thing. You know, <laughs> yeah. you flash blend it real quick. Just hit it for like, you know, five seconds. And the drink comes out frothy and delicious. But, you know, we use a flash blender on it. It says that's coconut cream, which coconut has fat in it. Uh, the Coco Lopez has fat. It, the drink just aerates and pearls up. It's just beautiful and fluffy, and the texture is amazing. So, you know, um, that, that's one way we make it. That's the way we make it. We make with a it, couple of ice cubes? Uh, with some uh, crushed, crushed ice, ice, like uh, pebble, yeah, ice. pebble ice. Pebble ice. Another way you could do it is, you know, the way we did at Boilermaker, we didn't have a Hamilton Beach Blender there. We did at Boilermaker, we just, you know, build it in the tin, throw a bit of uh, pebble ice in there, crushed ice, just whip it for about, you know, 10 seconds until the pebbles all dissolve so it gets nice and frothy. Then we just put in a glass and then top it with more pebbles or more crushed ice, whichever you happen to have, and that's it. You're good to go. I've also seen places put them in the blender like it was like, a, you know, an old school pina colada. In that case, you might want to up the Coco Lopez up a bit because as it gets really cold. Cold temperature inhibits the ability for your, for your palate to, to perceive sweetness. So you might want to do that, which is why, why I guess the best way to, to see how this happens in, in real life is um, melted ice cream is so much sweeter. Taste is perceived as being sweeter yeah. than, than cold ice cream, right? So, so that's it, you know, basically. And then, then once the drink's done, we garnish it with either mint sprig or, pine, or pineapple fronds. Mm-hmm. Prefer glassware kind of, for this? Um, we, we always put like a, I guess maybe like a, a Belgian glass. A lot, of, a lot of bars call them a pearl diver. Okay. But you could put in either a goblet, a Belgian glass, uh, pearl diver. It, it looks good. Pretty much anything that's about, about 13, 14 ounces, mm-hmm. you know, will, will, will work really well. And then we do is, you know, um, 
I've kind of rotated. It's my own. It's funny. It's my own drink. I haven't really landed on the garnish yet. Years later, because you can put pineapple fronds or mint sprigs. It's totally up to you. You know, you can even get elaborate, like like a a, a pineapple wedge. Put a cherry on there. Throw like a a parasol, whatever you're yeah, yeah. for. Go food. Yeah, maybe go I'm food always tiki. very much. But again, I think it comes back to the idea of just there's that flexibility in it. Yeah, where it's just the flexibility where we just we throw whatever's in there. You know, and I do feel like a lot of tropical cocktails kind of lend themselves a bit more to that. Mm-hmm. Though um, I, I do, I do myself prefer the, the pineapple fronds, but I'm not going to correct anybody if yeah. however they they choose to serve it. <laughs> yeah, very nice. Um, before I ask you any final thoughts on this drink, I'm reminded of something I wanted to ask you earlier. Mm-hmm. You know, we're going down this memory lane here. You were talking about you used to do a tiki Tuesday, right? yeah. And I know, and we've had a lot of guests on the show before talk about that. I think Brian Miller had his Tiki Monday. Yeah. Garrett Richard had one as well. I forget what this name of it was. 2013 we were yeah. doing? Yeah, 2013. So, but why was there this trend happening for like doing one night of Tiki, like having a Tiki night? Like we don't see that with any other style of cocktail. What is it about that? I've always been curious about that. I think specifically, well, now a lot of bars don't do them anymore because now there's actually places dedicated to that. So you don't need to like... You know, in San Diego now we have False Idol. So, you know, and then um, there's some, uh, um, you know, another spot in town, Grass Skirt. Both, both those places are doing great um, tropical cocktails. So we don't really have to do them anymore, you know. And then here in, in New York, you have Sunken Harbor now. So it's the the need to do a dedicated Tiki Night in a bar. It doesn't, isn't quite as pertinent, right? So because of that, I feel like in, in that era, specifically, and this kind of sucks, and this is what irked me at the time, was that a lot of times back then, the, the, the fancy craft cocktail bars, the speakeasies and stuff, they didn't take tiki drinks seriously. So a lot of them wouldn't even make them. Not only that, but they were like defiant about making them. Even, even if they had the ingredients, they were like, oh, we don't make that stuff. You know, we make classic cocktails here, like pre-prohibition. We're like, okay, whatever, which is, I, I think it was very, very, very stupid. Um, but that's, that's kind of how it was. Mm-hmm. I think one thing that helped is I know that a lot of the, the high end cocktail bars in the UK were taking those drinks seriously and we're doing them very well. So I feel like eventually that kind of spilled over. Back. Yeah. Came over. And here. I was bartending in San Francisco at the time, which, you know, obviously, you know, the Tiki footprint there was huge. So I feel like we never really had that issue in San Francisco. You know, if, if we had the ingredients, we were more than happy to make them for people, you know, especially yeah. Mai Tais. The 1944 Mai Tai was being cranked out all the time. You know, fog cutters, a lot of these drinks were still being made and, and served with regularity. So there wasn't that stuffiness, but I feel like it was happening in other cities a lot more. So as it spilled over, you know, I think a lot of the New York bartenders started to embrace what was happening in London. You know, this, obviously they're, 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 the accessibility and the, the cross-pollination was a lot bigger. So now... Now it's totally common to go to a high-end tiki bar or, sorry, uh, like, you know, craft cocktail bar and order tiki drink. You don't even get a, a second glance, you know, 10, 12 years later, right? Yeah. There, you don't even get that anymore. But back then it was a lot more pronounced. And mm-hmm. also, I think the reason why it tended to be more of a dedicated night was because a lot of these bars didn't stock these ingredients all the time. So they didn't always yeah. have passion fruit syrup. They didn't have fashionola. They might have not always kept, you know, um, you know, a 151 Demerara around. So it was just something that... It was a way of kind of putting all these cocktails in, in these ingredients together and, and, and making sure that you had them all for that one night. Yeah. Yeah. And yeah, or yeah, it feels like a lot of these those tiki drinks as well are very prep heavy. And if you have it on the menu, maybe it doesn't sell that well. Then Yeah. You then know. you're stuck with it, right? Yeah. And I do remember specifically the first bar that I saw 
outside of San Francisco that was taking, sorry, high-end cocktail bar that was taking tiki drinks seriously was Death & Company. I remember going there maybe 2009. Yeah. And they actually had a section, and this is, I'm sure it was Brian Miller's influence. Yeah, for you know, sure. That they were, they had a zombie on there, like made properly, you know, made to classic spec. And I remember trying it and it was absolutely delicious. And I remember thinking like, okay, cool. This is really cool that it's getting a bit of, um, it's getting a bit of shine. Cause again, as I mentioned, San Francisco, there was more of that footprint. Also at the time, you know, we had Martin Kate. Yeah. And Martin Kate was, um, he hadn't quite opened Smuggler's Co, but he'd already done Forbidden Island. And that place was just, that place was already starting to like get a really, really big buzz. And I remember I bartended the preview night, the Smuggler's Cove preview night with Martin in San Francisco, maybe 2008, maybe. It was at Bourbon and Branch. We had a, we had a, a preview night. And that bar, or the, even that, that night, there was a line around the block. And mind you, this is a tenderloin in 2008. You didn't want to be standing <laughs> on the street there, Damn. right? Um, and people were just out there just waiting to come in. They were so wow. happy and so eager. So I feel like there was a bit more of that. That that culture was still was very rich in the Bay Area. But I do remember seeing it start to get taken seriously. I remember when I went to Death Club, I was like, this is yeah. really cool. Maybe really not the cool. place you expected to, to yeah. see it being taken seriously yeah, either. Yeah, which is cool. And yeah. that's why I remember thinking like, oh, this is really cool. I'm glad to see that like, you know, this era of cocktails is finally getting like yeah. the shine that it deserves, you know, and especially at a place as prominent as Death & Co., so that, that I always thought that was really, really cool. So I, I, I honestly do feel like a, in retrospect, a bit of credibility was added to that style of drink in, in New York, especially for, for by being on that menu there, mm-hmm. you know, fantastic. Yeah. Really cool. Uh, really appreciate that context there. Yeah. Um, and now I can ask you any final thoughts on the, on the Pina Verde today before we move into the final section of the show. I mean, shoot, I guess I'm just really, I'm really proud of that drink. I am really proud of that drink because I have the, the Kentucky Buck, the Iron Ranger. I have a couple of drinks I feel like have kind of, you know, broken through and gotten a bit of a claim, you know, kind of taken on a life of their own. But of all those, I honestly, I do think the Pina Verde is the one I think the mo- one I'm most proud of, specifically for the economy mm-hmm. that's in place there, where I do feel like you can look back and be like, wow, that that drink accomplishes a lot with, with very few ingredients and, and drives home the point that like simple does not equal simplistic. Mm-hmm. So I'm just proud of that drink. Nice. Yeah. Nice. All right, then let's do it. Let's, let, let's finish the show with, uh, with our second round of questions here for you. So we're going to call this one question number six. Seems okay. like you've done five before. Okay. Okay. Are you feeling ready for it? I think so. I think so. <laughs> Here we go. Which spirits category are you currently most excited about? Ooh, shoot. This is, there's a lot going on here. Uh, I'm excited about a lot of, uh, a lot of uh, categories out there. I keep expecting by Joe to blow up. Not happening. I'm just like, I really, that's a category that just completely fascinates me. And it bums me out that people, outside of China generally just don't understand it. Yeah. I would even say there's a bit of like cultural chauvinism at play there because some of the ways that I've heard people dismiss it, I feel is nonproductive mm-hmm. because I do feel like for better or for worse, 
that spirit needs to be understood within the realm and within the context of food. Got it. And I do feel like there's so much opportunity there for deliciousness. And I wish people could expand their palates a bit and give it a chance. That's a good one. That yeah. is definitely a good one. It's really cool. Because yeah. the first time, you, you, you know, you hear about it, you see how it's made. I, I remember I was in um, Chengdu just before the pandemic. And I was, you know, visiting some of their distilleries in China. And the way it's distilled is just completely foreign. It, you know, not, not in the context of foreign, like, yeah. countries, country. I mean, just outside of your realm of comprehension. It's, it's distilled as a solid. As a solid. It's not... How does that even work? I don't even know. I've seen it with my own eyes and I can't wrap my head around it. <laughs> wow. And it's just, it's so unlike the way things are distilled in, in, you know, most of the world that it's just a very strange process. And the product I feel like can be just utterly complex and delicious and exciting mm-hmm. to comprehend, especially, but I do feel I wish more people would, would appreciate within the context of food. Nice. Yeah. Nice. Good answer. Yeah. All right. Next question here for you. What was the last drink or cocktail you had that truly wowed you? Hmm. Ooh, there's this drink that I'm very, very much in love with these days. It's called the four letter word. It's on the menu at Grand Army. It's a, it's a hot cocktail. That's just absolutely lovely. It's almost like a mix between like a hot buttered rum Ooh. and a, um, an Irish coffee because it's like a little bit of cream, but it's just a very, very lovely drink. And it's, it's, mm-hmm. it's a great nightcap or a way to start the night. <laughs> it depends on the temperature <laughs> yeah. outside, you know. But uh, I mean, there's, there's a style of drinks that, that there's a kind of wide open for mm-hmm. some folks to introduce more of, right? Like hot mm-hmm. cocktails. Irish beyond the Irish coffee and the and the hot toddy, where you know there's not a lot. There's a, lot a drink there. that I absolutely love, and it's just like you know, it's created by it was created by Giuseppe Gonzalez. It's called the Duke of Suffolk. It used to be at his bar um, that was over on um, Houston. Mm-hmm. The Suffolk was uh, Suffolk, Duke. Uh, it sounded, the name of it was like a British Suffolk pub. Arms. Suffolk, Suffolk Arms. Arms yeah. yeah, he had a cocktail on there, and it's just it's essentially a. Same build, more or less, as Irish whiskey, except Earl Grey instead of coffee. Ooh. And then gin instead of Irish whiskey. But everything else essentially is the same. That's cool. And it's just an absolutely lovely drink. And mm-hmm. I just think that every time I, ha- every time I have one, I'm just, I, I, I guess most bars don't carry Earl Grey or whatever, but that, just, that drink is just absolutely lovely, and I wish mm-hmm. it was more popular. <laughs> and, and, and the other one, that, that Grand Army, though, four-letter mm-hmm. word, I mean, you, I guess you can, you can interpret what kind of word that is. Could be love, could be, could be a bad word. Who mm-hmm. knows there? But decent name for a drink. I like that. Mm-hmm. Next question for you here. What's one book you think every alcohol or cocktail enthusiast should own a copy of? And it doesn't have to be a recipe book. And a ball of rum by Wayne Curtis. I told everyone to read that book, especially if someone's first getting into the world of cocktails or established. I always told them to read that book because, well, first off, anyone out there unfamiliar with his work, you know, he writes for the Atlantic. So he's obviously an, an accomplished author and writer just in his own right. But that book lays out such a compelling story of the way that culture and cocktails and history all intersect and essentially to better understand them, you need to understand the context of which produce them. You can't separate them. And you, it, to do so is at your peril because you will lose understanding of them. 
So his book, even though I think it was written about 12 or 13 years ago, I feel is still one of the most important books for people to read out there in regards to better understanding the culture of cocktails mm-hmm. and, and the world that produced them. Yeah, great book. Great book. Oh, it's there. wonderful. I think I have the audiobook version of that. So, yeah, I mean, if, so if, if you're not much of a reader, are you reading wanna, it? I, uh, that I would need to check. It's been it's been a couple of years since I yeah. listened to it, but po- quite possibly. Yeah. Oftentimes it is. Oftentimes it is the author, right? Yeah. One of the the best things I've ever done was I read Reed Mintbuehler's book, Bourbon Empire, at the same time as I was reading Howard Zinn's The History of the, of the United States, The People's History of the United States. I was reading them concurrently, you know, the, the colonial era in regards to, um, you know, Reed's book and just the two of them as they were overlapping you realize how much more dense the political and social constructs that were giving rise to bourbon at the time it, it's on I, I feel like it lent let me such a deeper perspective into mm-hmm. the history of bourbon and the world that created it nice yeah so there you go, folks. Three recommendations. Three yeah, for yeah, one. really, right? I don't, yeah, I no, don't I like expect it. everybody to, to read all, you know, you did all of um, Howard Zinn's book, but just the colonial era, and you know, especially through like probably the nineteen fifties, those, those two, mm-hmm. it, it really just illuminates, mm-hmm. and it gives so much more insight into understanding bourbon. And of course, you know, Reed's book is just absolutely, yeah, absolutely wonderful. He actually wrote a book on animation too. The release really? of animation that's great. I believe it's called Wild Minds. Incredible book. Nice. Talented yeah, I guy. I could talk about that book for 10 minutes, but, so I don't want to <laughs> lose track of everybody. All right. We'll move swiftly on to the next question then. Penultimate one for us here today. If you could appear in one movie scene where alcohol plays a prominent role, which one would it be and who would you like to play? How prominent? Because I, lo- I love the scene at the end of the first Avengers where Tony Stark, you know, he offers Loki a, a bit of whiskey. That's prominent enough. I love that part where he's just like, <laughs> hey, do you want a little bit of that whiskey? And, you know, Loki just kind of like, you know, pretty much tells him to like, you know, tells him off. Yeah. <laughs> and then things don't go his way. And he's like, can, can I still take you up on that drink? <laughs> you know, I've always loved that, that part of the movie. Maybe if I was there. I don't think he would have declined the first drink. I don't think he would have declined the first offer. So I probably would have offered something a little more compelling than just like, a, hey, can I pour you some whiskey? <laughs> I would be like, how about a Sazerac, my friend? Yeah. What's you in the mood for? What can I get you? Nice. Yeah. No, I, and I, I love when I love people's answers to that question because oftentimes, you know, people always tend to think outside the box on that one. We're not just talking I about I probably like, could have offered him an whatever, Incredible Hulk, but, yeah. which he did end up getting a sample of later in there the that scene. <laughs> And I'm yeah, pretty sure he would have he would have preferred the one I would have made. Yeah, yeah. There you go. Which uh, hypnotic and Hennessy. Yeah, classic, yeah. classic. Yeah. <laughs> forgotten, often forgotten that one. But yeah. again, we got we got an article about that fairly recent on mm-hmm. Vine Paired. Check oh, it the out, Incredible guys. Hulk. Yeah, that's great. That's great. Yeah, I think yeah, fantastic story. All right then, last question for mm-hmm. us here today, Eric Castro. Which modern classic cocktail? do you think is deserving of more attention or recognition than it gets? The Amaro Daiquiri. Talk us through that drink for uh, anyone who's unfamiliar with it. This was a cocktail created by Stephanie Andrews of um, Billy Sunday in Chicago. And the way she, w- I mean, it's essentially just two ounces of Amaro with lime and sugar. And it's, it's one of those drinks. Again, it's a, it's again, it's one of those drinks where, this has even more economy, if you really think about it, because really, yeah. <laughs> she uses two Amaro, 
in in the drink. So I guess four ingredients, but really you can make it, you know, if, if you're really happy with your Mario, it's three ingredients. And that's even, that's even harder to come up with, right? That is just, it's such a stellar cocktail and everyone I make it for is wowed by it. And I know that the drink is great because I've made it for people and they don't believe it's only three ingredients. It's like, what else is in there? <laughs> There's rum, right? And I'm like, no, it's just tomorrow wow. lemon sugar. Well, Amara's is that a little Smith well, Amara- You put a bar spoon of Smith. I'm like, no, it's just those. <laughs> the way she made, I believe. Oh, dude, I want to say it's like because I know it changes kind of based off what you happen to have behind the bar. Yeah, but if I remember correctly, is Braulio and Zuka, you know, three quarter lime, three quarter simple syrup, and then shaken, served, served up in a coop. That's it. Nice. That's it. You garnish it with the lime wheel if you'd like, a lime wedge, what have you. And the drink is just beautiful. It's it's majestic. There's nothing too complicated or, or complex in the build. It's just exactly what you think it is. And it's absolutely lovely. And I, I've had people tell me they've tried it with a ton of different Amaro, a ton of different, you know, um, combinations uh, of Amari. And it's just, it basically, it it works basically with, with whatever Amari you happen to have around you. Mm-hmm. And it's absolutely lovely. And I think... I would be way happier to see that drink getting ordered way more often. How about it then? Let's. Yeah. How about we go and order some ourselves? Yeah, some right. Ourselves. And also, I think I already plugged the Duke of Suffolk earlier as well. Yeah, like yeah. That there one, you go. Yeah. You know, but I, I don't know when this is going on, so it might not be cold anymore when this airs. So I want to make sure you know. I gave. <laughs> I gave there, there's two drinks. Two options there for you on the occasion. Yeah. Always at least two for one with you, Eric. <laughs> <laughs> All right, man. Well, thank you very much. Thanks for joining us and. Uh, Look forward to the next time. Yeah. Thanks again uh, to all of you out there for listening. Um, Tim, thanks for having me. Cheers. Okay. I know what you're thinking, folks. That was a lot of info. But here's the good news. Every single episode of Vinepair's Cocktail College is published on vinepair.com as a transcript. So you can check it out there all over again. If you enjoy listening to the show anywhere near as much as we enjoy making it, go ahead and hit subscribe. And please leave a rating or review wherever you get your podcasts, whether that's Apple, Spotify, or Stitcher. And please tell your friends. Now for the credits. Cocktail College is recorded in New York City and produced by myself and Darby Seaside, who also composed our awesome theme music. Let's give that a listen, folks. I also want to give a huge shout out to everyone on the VinePair team, especially co-founders Adam Teeter and Josh Mallon, editor-in-chief Joanna Sherino, and art director Daniel Grinberg, who designed our killer logo. Finally, thank you, listener, for making it this far and for giving this whole thing a purpose. Until next time.